All right, welcome to here for the Health of It podcast. We have Megan Eisman, PA, with us here today. Um, she has a long title. She'll be able to tell it to you, but she is a physician's associate in the Richland ER. Um, <laughs> Formerly known as a physician's assistant. Yep. And Actually known as physician, no apostrophe S. <laughs> Assistant or associate. Oh, so that's an interesting thing. Yeah. You're Off not a, a physician. I don't belong to You're a to physician. Mm-hmm. Good associate. to know. That, I would say that's a common mistake. Is that a common mistake? It's a very common mistake. Yeah, but it it's drives like, you crazy. It's like chiropractics. It's like, oh, you go to, you have your, yes. your chiropractics yet? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Good point. Okay. So tell, so then tell us kind of what your job position is and then lead into maybe what the schooling is to become a physician associate. Okay, perfect. So I am an acute care surgery physician assistant. And what that means is I see patients who are involved in trauma. I, we do their critical care management and then any emergency general surgery. And I work at Prisma Health at Richland. I've been there for about six years. And... And for most people kind of understand trauma, but for you, the most common trauma is probably a car accident. Yeah. 70% of what we see are blunt traumas, which are car accidents, motorcycle crashes, ATV crashes, people falling out of deer stands. And then the other like 20 to 30% are penetrating, which are like gunshot wounds, stabbings, Mm -hmm. things like that. What about falling off horses? That's actually a much bigger issue than people think. Falling off horses or being trampled by their horse. Mm-hmm. I would say we see like maybe 10 to 20 really bad horse accidents every year. Yeah. I Because I didn't realize how bad it was until I got became a chiropractor and constantly had people who were injured from falling off a horse. Mm-hmm. Uh, but 20 to 30 bad ones a year is a lot. Yeah. And it's usually like if they've like trampled on their chest, it can be like bad chest trauma, lots of rib fractures, spinal cord injuries, spinal fractures. So there's definitely a lot of, it's something you don't think about. And I didn't when I decided that I was going to work in trauma. And then when we kept seeing them and then the falling out of a deer stand was new to me too. Um, How many people are like, oh yeah, well it was pretty rickety or I hadn't been out there since last year or I really wanted to get that deer. So is it, is it rodeo injuries for the horses or is it just people out riding normally? It's usually people out riding and a lot of times it's their own horse too. Yeah. yeah. So. Hmm. So take us back to your schooling because we were talking before the show, we were confused on how does one become a physician associate? So it is, so I went to four years of undergrad and then most PA programs require that you have 2000 hours of direct patient experience before you go to PA school. And what was your undergrad in? So I was a health sciences major, Um, and I picked that mostly because a lot of things that I feel like people are missing when they get like regular biology majors or chemistry majors is they're not getting like a lot of exposure to how the healthcare system even works. And so my major actually offered like a United States healthcare systems course. They offered like insurance in the United States, which I feel a lot of people don't understand, even though they're working in that industry. Mm -hmm. And then I took a lot of psychology classes as well, um, which has been hugely beneficial to me. So 
four years of undergrad. And then 2,000 hours in what? So it's direct patient contact, meaning you have to touch and see and talk to patients. And the reason schools require that is because, you know, you graduate at 21, 22. They don't want to, and then PA schools, usually only two or three years. And so they don't want to have all of these like really young practitioners that may or may not be trusted by the community. Like if they think you're 24, 25 and super spry, your patients may not take you seriously. And And no experience. Right. And when you go to PA school, because it's only two or three years, you it's way more fast paced so they kind of want you to have experienced and get some of like almost like an internship out of the way before you come to school so mine was i worked at the uh, i went to the university of florida stayed there for an extra year after i graduated and worked at the student healthcare office nice um and so i got to see a lot of the students come in for a myriad of different things, whether it was like the common cold or STDs. STDs. Yeah. I was going to have an STD clinic. Um, our team was specifically, we had the like STD clinic in our office. And so those, and then we did a little bit of germ. Oh, wait, too. let's stick back at that for a minute. <laughs> what, what was your, do you remember your very first person who had an STD that you met with as a, you would have been 22 years old. So it usually always is like, I don't know how this happened. There's just a little bit of green, like just test me for everything. Just and then, a little bit of green. <laughs> and then, yeah, or like it burns. So you get a straight. Right. So they're sitting, it's just you and this person, right. and then they just explain so it. So then all we say is like, we're going to have you give a urine sample or collect some blood, and then we'll be on your way. And if you don't hear from us, it's a good thing. And if you hear from us, you know, we'll call it a treatment for you. Um, and then midway through, actually, DHEC came and worked like in our office so that they could do screenings more affordably because the biggest things that students were worried about was that it was going to show up on their parents' insurance. And so they wouldn't get tested. So DHEC was like, well, if we come and actually work on campus and offer this for free, we can prevent the spread and also teach safe practices, which is important, I guess, on a college campus. Did you ever run into anybody you knew? No. Okay. No. That's good. That I, and I was always really afraid of that because I had just graduated the year before, so I certainly knew people. And um, the way Florida worked was every like student was broken up into a team, like red team, green team, blue team, based on their last name. So I was always really nervous that I was going to like have to see and do all of the intake on somebody who I knew and right. like may or may not sister. would have wanted to tell me what yeah. was going on. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So then, um, okay. So then you did probably how many hours there? So I worked there for a full year Um, and Florida was, so I stayed at Florida for PA school. And the nice thing about Florida was you could continue to get your hours like up until the time you started PA school, whereas other programs that I had interviewed at like Emory and Duke wanted to have, you had to complete your 2000 hours before you even interviewed. So it was nice because I really didn't want to take two years off. Like it was already such a struggle for me to be in like this limbo like I was graduated from college but working just at like a doctor's office taking intake and I wanted to be in grad school so it was kind of like an identity crisis year where all my friends were out like with their real jobs or in grad school and I was like okay well here I am working at a doctor's office during the day and like a restaurant at night yeah Um, so I was excited that Florida didn't make me like take two years off it was just the one so 2,000 hours is 40 hours a week for one year. For one year, okay. And then what brought you to Columbia or South Carolina? So went to PA school at Florida. The first year of PA school in University of Florida has one of the shortest PA programs. It's 24 months straight through. 
with no breaks. So a lot of programs are a little longer than that. But ours was very streamlined, but it was also very intensive. So I was there. My whole first year is just didactic. You're in the classroom the whole time and lectures from 8 to 5 every day. And then your second year is a clinical year where you actually go into the hospital or physician's offices and you work alongside of them. And so my first rotation was in obstetrics in women's health, which I loved. And I contemplated actually dropping out of PA school and going back to medical school after that rotation because there's not a lot of PAs in obstetrics. It's very either physician-oriented or like nurse practitioner-oriented. Um, and so I really felt like if I loved this so much, I wouldn't have a role in that specialty. And so I really contemplated being like, well, I need to go back to medical school. Luckily, I stuck it through and went to my second rotation, which was in trauma and critical care. And I absolutely was like, I love this, and I could love this as much as women's health. And the preceptor that I worked with in Florida happened to be interviewing and had an accepted position here in Columbia. And so he told me, so this is in September, he said to me, you should really interview in Columbia. And I'm like, well, I don't graduate until next May. He's like, oh, they're desperate. Like, they really need, no, they have such a high volume that they really need practitioners. And I think they would be willing to train a new grad and wait for somebody. So I applied, flew up here and interviewed, told everyone that there was no way I was coming here. Um, I flew into the Columbia airport, stayed at the embassy suites like in West Columbia, mm -hmm. and then went to Richland, which if you've ever taken that drive, Yikes. there's nothing along the way. I was like, I cannot imagine living here. And it was like a cold January day where it was like dull and gray. And I was like, I just can't see myself living in this town. So I went back home and I had a second rotation in trauma with this same surgeon who pestered me every day and was like, no, but you really have to work there. Like, I'll be there. You'll have a good boss. And oh, by the way, I've convinced these other two people that there should work there. So you'd have some friends and like, because they need people so badly, the pay is really competitive. And I thought, well, if I had those three things, I could stay for two years and then move to like DC or New York, which is where I really wanted to be. And so then it took me about five years to decide that I actually liked Columbia and I was definitely going to stay here and make roots. And so really within like the last year and a half, I was like, oh yeah, this is where I want to be forever. Wow. So what was the, I guess, um, pecking order in the training that you had? Were you, did you have a training physician associate and then you were an intern under them? Or I, I guess I don't understand the pecking order. and yeah. all that. So in clinicals, we mostly trained under physicians. It was rare. Oh. Like, So Dr. Moore, who I worked with in Florida, that was the surgeon I worked under, he trained me. He had a physician assistant at that time, Kelly Cornell, who actually moved to Columbia to work here and is one of my close friends. But it's funny because everyone's like, oh, did Kelly train you? And she really didn't. I would say that's somewhat changed now since I've graduated. We have students from University of South Carolina all of the time, and they are mostly trained by us, the physician assistant, as opposed to the surgeon or the physician. Um, but when I was going through rotations, almost all of my training was done either by the physician or by resident staff members at our teaching hospital. Okay. And, and what aren't you allowed to do? So the only thing I don't really do is operate independently. So you still need a surgeon for that. Mm -hmm. 
we assist. And then in the ICU, there are some procedures that I still don't like to do independently. You can get certified to do each of them. Um, there are some that I'm either just, I don't do enough of them often that I want to be unsupervised. Um, but I would say for the most part, the biggest thing that I can't do is that we can't operate. Um, but for the most part, at least in our hospital, I'm fairly autonomous in what I do. Yeah. So let's take us, let's take the listeners through a scenario on how they would meet you. Like, a, so if they wanted to meet Megan Eisman, they climb to the top of their roof, mm-hmm. they jump off, yep. they bust their leg open. Yep. Ambulance comes and then they end up at Prisma. Tell us like how that goes. So Tom gets on the roof after I told him a hundred times not, not to. to. He falls because he's doing something dumb. He's cutting down some trees. Exactly. With his landscape company. <laughs> right, right, right. Turquoise tanks. His, um, you know, chainsaw cuts his arm. He breaks his leg. And so the emergency uh, EMS will arrive on scene and be like, oh, this guy, he's going to need a lot when he We've gets to the hospital. We've seen him before. How, yes. What percentage have you seen before when they show up? More than you. Like, I can't <laughs> tell you the actual number, but there are people who we know by name. That we're like, oh, Johnny's hey, back. Hey, John. Um, and so, and those patients are kind of fun because you're like, oh, well, this isn't surprising. And we call it, we kind of tell them like, all right, you have nine lives. Like if you think you're a cat and you have nine lives, like we're on number seven. So pretty soon your luck is going to run out. Is it, and is it mostly, they're just terrible drivers? No. They're clumsy? No. They're risk takers? Yeah. I would say (laughs) they're perpetual risk takers or it's like. That would I would say most of our frequent repeat clients patients are it's usually gun violence, um, some sort of violence. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, so let's say hypothetically you're on a roof, you fall, your chainsaw cuts you, and your legs busted wide open. Um, EMS will see you on scene and be like, "This is bad." They actually like call every patient. Like I don't know if y'all realize this, but. Every patient that people, the EMS sees on scene, they actually have to call it in to the emergency department so they kind of have a heads up on like what's coming in emergently. And so the person who intercepts that or who listens to these calls is called the comm center. And so they'll actually, they have a paper in front of them and they'll start checking off things on boxes if they meet these criteria for being injured enough. And if they meet so many criteria, they say, in addition to the emergency department team, we're also going to alert the trauma team. Mm-hmm. So that's when I would get a page that would say, in 10 minutes, the emergency or EMS is coming, and you better be downstairs waiting for them. So my team would come downstairs, and we would do the evaluation. Time out. So before that happens, you guys run scenarios, right? Because I think you you were talking to me before the show about um, – each one of you guys has on the trauma team, do you split up who does what so that it's almost like running a football play? It's like, all right, you're going to do this. You're going to do this. You're going to do this. So each person kind of has their checklist when the person arrives. Right. So to work in trauma, everyone takes ATLS, which is advanced trauma life support. So just like there's CPR courses, like basic life support and then advanced life support, there's one for trauma. And so we follow an algorithm which is airway, breathing, circulation, disability, environment. And so we go in that order, and everybody knows that order. And so when we come in, maybe a team of 10 will show up, and we each assign ourselves a job. And so one person may just be documenting on the computer. 
One person is in charge of airway, meaning that if that person's not breathing well, they're going to maintain the airway. Somebody's doing somebody else's, like, what we call, like, the primary survey, making sure, like, listening to breast sounds, checking pulses, helping to – every trauma patient ends up naked. The reason for that is because what I might not have known is that, yeah, Tom fell off the roof and he has a broken leg, and we know that chainsaw cut his arm. What I didn't know is that he fell on a limb because it punctured through his clothing. And so we would actually cut off his shirt and his pants so that when we look at him, we can see if there's any hiding wounds that we may not have seen. Who does the full inspection? So anybody, so like there's whoever's doing the primary survey, really you're just checking for the big things, airway, breathing, circulation. And then, you know, this disability is this kind of quick over glance. Then once we know that the patient's stable, because those are the, you know, the first major three things that would need to be addressed, then the patient gets rolled. We look at the front and the back to make sure. So if I see, okay, we rolled Tom over. He has a big puncture wound on his back that's bleeding. Now is, then we kind of start over from the beginning. Okay, that's bleeding. We got to do something about this because he can't bleed all over the tape. You know, his blood pressure will start to drop. His heart rate will start to go up. And so we follow that meticulously. And if at any point something arises that makes us have to start over, we will. What preparation, so like the EMS team's doing, they're putting an IV in the purse. What are they doing before that happens, especially if somebody's bleeding like that? So it just depends, like, how experienced your EMS team is. So if they're helicoptered in, those flight nurses have a lot more experience. So they may put an IV in in the field. They may start fluids. They may give whole blood. Um, sometimes they'll even intubate the patient. So those have the most experience. Other times... They may just, they're trying to get to the hospital so quickly, they may just put an IV in. It's really once they get to the hospital, they just tell us, Tom Setson, 20 or 37-year-old male, fell off a roof. He has these obvious injuries. We put an IV in and gave him one liter of fluids. This is his blood pressure, his heart rate, you know, his GCS, which is a measure of mentation. Mm -hmm. um, and then we kind of kindly ask them to leave just so that we can start doing our work. The less people and the less commotion, mm -hmm. usually the better a trauma runs. So was there ever a shirt that you had to cut off that you knew it was a $5,000 shirt? Most expensive shirt you've cut off? No, but there has, we, a lot of motorcyclists, if they have any kind of cognition to them whatsoever, they will be like, do not cut my leather, do not cut my leather, yeah. please don't cut my leather, can you slide my leather off? And so like, if they're stable enough, and we can, like, we will try and, like, shimmy things off that we feel like are nice. But for the most part, like, if somebody's very critical, it's like, okay, what do you care about more, your life or your shirt? Right. But people do get mad. Same thing with, like, we have to take off all your jewelry because when we go to CT scan, it'll interfere with the picture. And people are very worried that somehow we're going to, like, steal all of their belongings, which I completely understand. But they all get locked up and put in a safe. Like, security's in the room. Same thing with... Um, for a while, when we were having a lot more increase in violence, we'd actually like have to like wave people down with a metal detector first, like a wand, just to make sure there weren't like any weapons that could possibly right. like disarm. When we were like very quickly removing wow. clothing that could be in pockets or whatever. Interesting. Um, okay, so you get them nude, and uh, I stopped listening after that. <laughs> no, so then you you go through your airway. When does it? When does it? They, this person skipped ER. They've mm -hmm. skipped that whole thing. You guys are now the trauma team. The ER physicians, they don't generally come in. Or how do you code it differently where like you're like, all right, this isn't you. 
you guys go back to the ER and then move them to, is there like a trauma area or operating area or how does that work? Yeah. So in our ED, our trauma bays are separated by like walls and doors. So if you were in our emergency department, you would probably never know that there's in like trauma bays just because they're kind of in a separate section. The emergency department physicians respond to all of the trauma activations. And a lot of times, sometimes because they're already down there, they're in the room before we even are. They manage the airway at our particular hospital. And so they will stay through making sure that the patient has a good airway. Um, and then if also like, if it seems like we may need continued support, like they'll stand at the back of the room and just be there if we need their help. Um, but for the most part, the actual trauma is run by our team. And what a trauma team consists of usually is surgeons, your nurse practitioners or PAs, your surgical residents, and then you have nurses in the room and then respiratory therapy. That's kind of who makes up the response to a trauma. How many people would you say per trauma case that come in? We try and keep it under 10. Okay. Usually two nurses, one nurse who's documenting, one who's like running fluids or IVs. Um, pharmacy, I forgot to mention them, they will help. They're a huge help in administering medications. And then you'll have the emergency department staff at the head of the bed doing airway. Usually one or two trauma residents or physician assistants kind of doing that primary survey we talked about, and then one of us documenting. And so, anesthesiologist too, probably? No. So we so anesthesiology doesn't come because we do our own intubations and sedation. Oh. So I envision like a pit crew. Exactly. Do you guys time everything and see like how f you do? And then so once you time it, because <laughs> I was thinking like... In real time or you do practice runs too? No. So we do real time. The goal is, so in trauma, the goal is faster the better. Like you want to get them out of the trauma bay as quickly as possible. So we try and do under 14 minutes. I will tell you that that's, depending on how sick the patient is, like that can be a lofty goal because if they're very unstable, the rule in trauma is like you don't move an unstable patient. Like you stabilize them to the point where they can get somewhere. So sometimes if a patient like if they're really, really unstable, if they're crashing in front of us, we may do things like open their, like if there was a gunshot wound to the heart. If they're so unstable, they're dropping their blood pressure, they've maybe gone into cardiac arrest, we will open their chest in the trauma bay and do surgery in the trauma bay. If they are any close to being stable, in the stable enough to get upstairs one floor to the operating room, we will try and get them there because it's just much safer. We have more equipment, it's a more controlled environment. Um, and then if they're very stable, like if they're talking to us and things seem to be fine, their blood pressure's normal, their heart rate's fine, then we'll go to the CT scan so that we can have images. And the reason you want imaging is because it kind of guides your intervention. You're not going in blind. Um, but we've seen every extreme of having to do, you know, spending an hour in the trauma bay because we're actually operating in there versus, you know, being very efficient and getting in and out into the operating room or CT scanner very quickly. Is so, that a good visual? Do you understand I, kind I understand. of what yeah. it's well, like? Well, what, what room do they move to next then? So that happens and say you... They go upstairs, I think. Yeah, right? what, where do they go? Is there different divisions? Like this is a cardiac person, so then you go to the cardiology area. This is a lung or respiratory. Is that how that works? So it's... So you're either going to... So there's a couple different scenarios. One, you die. So if you die, then you don't go anywhere. You go to the morgue. 
The second option Which is, we're is gonna that, have to you, dive into that. that you need emergent surgery. And so you're going immediately from the trauma bay to the operating room. Okay. The third option is, is that you are somewhat stable enough to go to the CT scanner and have your body scanned from head to toe. If they are very critical but may not need an operation, we will try and get an ICU bed for them as quickly as possible. So move them upstairs to our ICU. And then another if, team takes over. If there's no, we'll know that our team is still oh. primary. So that's how we differ from like emergency department staff. We follow our patients. So like mm. we remain their team. Okay. If they, if there's no beds available, then they'll hold in the ED. And the ED is in a remarkable place where they can care from everything from someone who's super stable to super sick. Yeah. And so they may hold down there. So we have a very close relationship. I would say the people we work closest with in the hospital are emergency department, neurosurgery, and orthopedics. And what do you guys, so if somebody goes to the OR, is there one surgeon that, that uh, does like general surgery or when do you call in specialists and have multiple, like if there's a, a lung case, a cardio, a a gut issue? Are there multiple surgeons doing all of that? So anything in the chest or belly, a trauma surgeon will do. And so our surgeons who are available for, who are running the trauma, will take them to the OR. If it's a bad brain case, then we call our neurosurgery colleagues. They have to be in the hospital 24-7 just like us, so they're always available. And then if it's a bad orthopedic injury, like let's say your bone's sticking outside of your body and that's something that needs to be addressed, we'll call orthopedics. I, and they have to be in the hospital 24-7. Those are the three really big categories that require emergent surgery. If you shatter your face, that's a problem, but we likely are going to be able to, it doesn't have to be fixed within, you know, an hour or right. two hours like the other injuries may. Yeah. Okay. And what's, what's a, the most complex thing you've seen come through? Like, have you ever had a pregnant person that was, that had a severe trauma or gunshot wound or something where it's like, this is a, there's two lives going here. Yeah, so that's a phenomenal question. So pregnancy is always, everyone gets really nervous when there's a pregnant mom, and it's usually car crashes. And so the priority still is mom, because if mom isn't healthy, then baby can't be either. Um, depending on how many weeks along she is, we'll always alert OB, and a lot of times they'll come down. We have an ultrasound in the room, so we use ultrasound for a lot of different reasons in the trauma bay. We look at to see how the heart's beating. We look at different quadrants in the abdomen to see if we can see fluid where it's not supposed to be. But then also, if there's a pregnant mom, we can look at baby. And the biggest thing we look at first is if their fetal movement or fetal heart rate. And then OB will come down. If it's not, um, OB kind of helps guide us. If it's not a very serious injury, they may say, you don't have to CT this person. It's a bigger risk to put them through the radiation of scanning them. Um, or... They'll say, you know, hey, this injury is severe enough. Do whatever you need to do first because obviously mom takes priority. Um, and then they'll monitor them. So we kind of – we work cohesively, but everyone does get a little rattled. But the yeah. algorithm is supposed to stay the same with every patient, and mom is always supposed to take priority just because if you don't have a healthy mom, you can't have healthy baby. Right. And, and would you say that pregnant women are worse drivers than non-pregnant women? No, I would say they're <laughs> Or just, right, just women in general? Is it <laughs> – now, I will say complex cases, and this is where ethics always comes in, is we have had, at least in the time I've been there, maybe three different cases where mom is brain dead and has a fetus that's, not, that's close to term but not there. And so there's always been 
that's where we have to work really close with the family to decide, do they want to keep mom in a comatose state as an incubator while the fetus gets to viability, which is usually around 26 weeks. Wow, that's Um, wild, yeah. And we, like within the past three months, we've had someone whose family said, yes, we do want, we're electing to keep, you know, put her on a breathing tube, keep her heart pumping with whatever, you know, medications you need to because it's tragic that we've lost mom, but like if there's any chance to preserve the life of the fetus, like we would like to. And so that has happened. you know, several times during my last six years. Yeah. So, so what kind of a toll does that take? Because I'm always looking at the scenarios you're going through and thinking, I don't know how I would handle that. It's super humbling. So like the reason I love trauma, because when you, most people meet me, they're like, you're so kind, you're so sweet. You wear your emotions on your sleeve. Like how can you do a job that can be so sad? And what I tell people is like for every bad day in trauma, you have 10 really good days. And what I mean by that is like the largest trauma population is between the ages of one and 40. It's your risk-taking population. And so most people are relatively healthy. So if they are in a car crash or fall or get shot even, like their chance of recovery is actually fairly good. If they're not critically ill in that first hour or two where we're losing them, then if they make it through that first initial period, there's a good chance we're going to see recovery, at least to some extent. And so being with somebody when they come in on their worst day and helping them rehab and recover to the point where they're leaving and have a second chance kind of, it's really good perspective and it's really motivating to see people do so well. And it's really to know that you were in the trenches not only with them but with their families and being able to be like a really positive light for them, that's where I get the satisfaction in my job. And it's like, and then when they go to leave, it's also like, look how far you come. Like, do you know the journey that we've been on? And for us, like our patients aren't in the hospital typically for three to five days. Some of these patients are in the hospital for three to five months. And so we really do get to know them and build a relationship. And so me and all of my team members, like, we can rattle off, like, our favorite patients from the last five or six years. Like, oh, do you remember when so-and-so was here? Or do you remember this room that so-and-so was in for such a long time? And so I feel like there's a lot of joy. Whereas on the medicine side of things, which is a side that I never had much interest in, they're dealing with a lot of chronic illness that they just feel like no matter how hard they work or how hard they try, like, they're not really getting anywhere. Um, whereas ours is like, like cancer, car, uh, right. heart attack, stroke. Right. Like Connor said to me the other day, something about, oh, we'll take, do a good job taking care of all the sick people. And I was like, oh, my patients aren't sick. They're hurt. And so I kind of think that's the distinction. Like most of my patients, they're, they're sick. There's something going on in their body, but mostly it's because they're hurt. Yeah. Has anybody showed up with like pieces of their body, like in a, not a part of them? Yes. What's mm-hmm. that like? Or do you have any stories that are just like? Yeah. So, I mean, we have factories here in Columbia. There's a big chicken plant. And so a lot of times people will get their hands stuck in machinery. And so it's like, here's the machine and the hand. And like, here's the person. Like, can you they salvage? They come in with the machine? Or yeah. I mean, a if, part of it? if your hand's stuck. I mean, they everybody tries to bring a limb or that they can to see yeah. if it can be salvaged. A lot of times it can't. Um, and that's where we have the difficult discussion and it's not really a discussion it's life or limb and so the limb is always what's yeah. first 
and then we kind of do recovery on the back end. Um, but yeah, the routinely, like if you were to, and if it's a clean, like for like a, a clean cut, then it's easier to yeah. attach. But for the most part, extremities are pretty Shredded. mangled with the type of trauma we see. What about like, how do you eat lunch? So <laughs> like, say you see like something just gruesome and then it's like, all right, guys, let's, uh, let's go to the, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. have there ever been times where you're just like, where you see stuff or smell stuff or touch stuff that you're just like, like just grossed out though. That's how, I mean, I just think I could never, I can't even watch it on TV. No. So I eat lunch perfectly. And now I will say when I was in PA school after cadaver lab, so we did a semester full of where we did complete cadaver dissection and I didn't eat lunch meat for a long time. It was the smell of the formaldehyde that yes. really got to me. Ugh. But, um, I might not be able to eat today. That's, no, we did formaldehyde. And it, I know. It no, it's bringing me back. Body for it's bringing it me does. back. But in, it, that's what's kind of crazy is like there hasn't – the traumas don't really get to you after a while, and I think that's just kind of the immunity of like what you do. And it's not that you don't care, and it's not that you don't try and like find humili- like humanity in people um, because you do. But at the same time, like I don't know how my brain wired itself to be able to separate the two. But I can't say that like there's anything that has rattled me to the point um, at this point. When early on, um, young people, like I had a, a very, very, very close friend who died in a bad car crash. And so every young person I saw really did. I was trying to almost like figure out her case in my head as we cared for these people. And so that was very challenging. But even now, like it's kind of beyond that. You've seen enough. You can kind of separate yourself enough. Um was there like movies growing up or stuff growing up where you're just like, uh, like seeing blood and guts and you're just, that's, that seems normal or what got you? I just think like, I. so my uncle's an OBGYN. So from the time I was like, I could talk, I said, I want to be a baby doctor. Like I just thought that I would do what he wanted to do. So it was actually when I did my first rotation in women's health, it made complete sense to me. Cause I had been saying that since I was a little kid, even though I didn't really grasp what that meant. And then, um, my grandfather had leukemia and so I would always like in my they were such a big part of like my caretaking and upbringing that I would go to doctor's appointments with him and so I was like not phased at all by blood or guts trauma was surprising to everybody but me like I said because most people thought like oh this is such a depressing job but I will say like it's as I mentioned before like it's brought more joy than it has brought sadness and I think you told me and I might be this might be wrong do you guys videotape like the pit crew side of it or no so we do and then you guys run it back like to see what could have been better right because i think that's pretty cool for people to know like after something happens you guys review the tape if you will almost like a football play and be like oh we should have done this or we could have changed this so that it keeps getting better each time right so our cameras in the trauma bay just got updated this year so that they are like 360 cameras with really good audio and really good quality um I can't say that I've personally ever sat down and like re-reviewed, but we have a whole team. So like, like our trauma center, there's different levels of verification here in Columbia. We have a level one trauma center, which is the highest tier. We see the most critical patients and to keep that verification um, from the American college of surgeons, you have to do process improvement and basically look back at all of your cases that didn't go well and review them and see what could have been improved. So every week we talk about every outcome that we had that was less than ideal. And we're talking about things as simple as this patient got pneumonia from being on the ventilator 
could we have extubated them sooner? Could we gotten them right. off the ventilator sooner? So everything that's even the slightest bit bad, we go through and talk about. Yeah, that's cool. And so if something were to go bad in the trauma bay, our process improvement team can look back at the tapes and really and discuss. And we have this meeting that I don't go to, but my co-lead does called trauma outcomes where they actually do run these tapes back or they do discuss like, you know, why did this person die in the trauma bay? Was there anything we could have done to prevent this? And sometimes the answer is no, but, um, it's my favorite. One of my favorite parts about medicine is like rarely in your profession. Do you go back and evaluate like so thoroughly how something could be done better and really in all of medicine, it's called mortality and morbidity. You talk about every bad outcome and every bad, you know, or even death um, and review it on a very like critical level. Now, do you know if like what parts of the country have the the furthest drive to a trauma center? Like where would you not want to have a trauma or is there any sort of logic to where they set up, say, like these level one traumas versus the other ones? Because I'm just thinking like, I don't know, you fall in the middle of North Dakota what's do they have to flight you somewhere or how does all that work awesome question so in the southeast we're super lucky south carolina we have five trauma centers columbia in the middle of the state then you have the upstate in greenville as well as spartanburg you have myrtle beach you have charleston so five centers in your state all level one or all level one those are just our level ones and the, the closest level two i know to here is mcleod like in florence okay um, but in the middle of nowhere, like let's say your Iowa's, your Nebraska's, states like that, North Dakota, South Dakota, there may be one, if one, in your state. And so there's a different level of triaging that happens in the emergency department or with general surgeons in those. And so that's actually why ATLS, which is Advanced Trauma Life Support, the triaging system was created in the first place. It was to take your typical emergency medicine doctor or a general surgeon and have them be able to look at a patient, follow a step-by-step algorithm, determine who could stay in their rural hospital and who needed to be flighted somewhere else and adequately use resources, especially when resources are scarce, like helicopters or ambulances. So that's actually the whole reason ATLS wasn't created. Um, And we're just lucky in the Southeast that we have a lot of those hospitals. And what about um, over the years that you've been in trauma, what advancements have you seen that have been like pretty cool or what changes have you seen over the years that we've like gotten better at from a trauma standpoint or even from a medical standpoint? So this is pretty technical, but my favorite advancement that I've seen, it was in its inception when I first became a trauma PA, but it's called Reboa. And so Let's say you were shot and the bullet like put a hole in your aorta. Uh-huh. So that's the giant blood vessel that kind of is the delivery system to all of your organs. So that's a pretty bad injury. And so what we would have to do is very quickly be able to open your chest or your belly, remove, like get all of the other structures away, find the hole and put a clamp like basically on top of it and below it to stop basically exsanguination of blood. Yeah. And that was extraordinarily invasive. A lot of times we couldn't get there quick enough. And it was such a bloodbath because that's such a large so organ that like it they... almost was, you know, it was a fatal injury most of the time. Yeah. 
Now with a Reboa catheter, that is a catheter that you put in through the femoral artery and it's a balloon catheter. And so you would basically you say, based on like where the injury looks, so if it looks like there's a penetrating wound to the chest, there's different zones, the top one being zone one, and you would slide the catheter all the way up from the leg, from the leg, and then you would inflate a balloon and that would stop all flow distally to that. And so that gives you enough time to get to the operating room to open the area where you think it is. In this case, it would be their chest. And then because the blood has been stopped from the balloon and up, you have a dry field. So much more easily are you able to find the hole, repair the hole without the patient bleeding. And most people think, well, all your other organs haven't been perfused. And that's why, so this is done quickly. I mean, we're talking 30 minutes to an hour that the balloon may be up, no more than 90 minutes. And so while the other organs may suffer a little bit because they haven't had blood flow and therefore oxygen. They, um, you know, those can be reperfused later and we can kind of deal with that once they're in the ICU, but they're not dying necessarily. Um, and that's a really cool intervention, which I think has helped yeah. us save a lot of lives. I would have thought for sure. You've told me like the aorta's touched at all. I would think you're dead. Yeah. So it's just a lot of blood. So how long can I, so it is an, is 90 minutes the cutoff where it's like you are shutting down that artery for 90 minutes. Yeah. There's got to be some significant consequences. And there is, there's like a catecholamine response that we'll have to deal with on the back end. The kidneys are really fickle. So like those are usually what, like these patients have bad kidney injury afterwards. So we'll have to take them to the ICU. They'll maybe need a few days of dialysis to be able to have their kidneys recover. So, I mean, it's not a benign process. But at the same time, like if we're able to save their life and then kind of recover the other organs on the back end, that's a win. Um, and just like when we say 90 minutes, that's kind of an average. When you think about heart attack and they talk about door to balloon, that's the same kind of thing. Like with stents, like your heart can only take so many minutes without having blood flow. So that's kind of in cardiology. Right. It's the same thing when you're having a heart attack, even in stroke, they're thinking, you know, 90 minutes to three hours as far as like if there were a clot that was cutting off blood flow to the brain, like that's when they'll do intervention. So when we think about blood flow, I'd say like the nice kind of round number that everyone says is 90 minutes. Now let's talk neurology Okay. for our chiropractic listeners Okay. because we love the nervous system. Yes. So what's the most severe neurological trauma that you've seen and the the long like if somebody did survive it what was the function like how did they function afterwards like say a severed nerve or a severed some some sort of spinal cord injury because i think people my point where i'm going with this hopefully is that people forget that the brain the spinal cord the nerves controls everything so it is the foundation of everything so when we're adjusting the spine people tend to think oh it's just like my back oh my great my back feels better my neck feels better when we're thinking like, no, we're removing interference to the system that controls everything to your body. And that's proven when, if a nerve is severed or if a nerve is cut to some organ part, you know, finger, that part stops working, right? And how, so what have you seen and even just maybe even some recoveries and how long stuff like that takes with neurological issues? So I think my the best example of chiropractic you ever gave me is you said something like, imagine I was pinching your spine and like what kind of dysfunction would you have? Mm -hmm. And I never really thought about it that way. 
as if you were out of alignment and your bones could be like encroaching on your spinal cord, like what kind of problems right, that could be right. causing. So like when you said that to me, that was like the best visual I ever had of like, oh, this is super important that my I'm keeping my spine healthy. Mm-hmm. Um, because in the hospital, like there are people who have let's say they have a vertebral body fracture and it's pressing on the spinal cord, they may say to me, like, my whole arm feels numb, depending Mm -hmm. on where it is. Or if they have any cerebral or um, spinal cord edema from their crash. Swelling. They may say, yeah, swelling. They may say, like, I I can move my arms, but it's not like I typically move them. If there was blood in that area, these are all reasons why – we would take any kind of neurological deficit. These are people who have indications for surgery, even if they're minor. Like, um, they would, you know, take them to surgery to kind of decompress whatever is pressing on the spinal cord. So I think that when you said to me, even like the smallest misalignments that we can control in chiropractic, think about like how many. Yeah, the long term. Yeah, like like maybe that's why you've had headaches for as long as you have, or maybe that's why your gut doesn't work the way that it's supposed to. Um, That was a great visual for me. And so I think about that a lot because in the hospital, when people even have the slightest neurologic deficit with an associated injury, like those are the people that neurology or neurosurgery is like, okay, we're going to do an intervention. Yeah. Um, As far as severe injuries, unfortunately, quadriplegia that's the most devastating somebody who can't move their arms or their legs and usually that's after like the transection of a cord um which you know surgery won't fix um and and most of those people end up dying or having issues with immune dysfunction like common colds are very problematic for them because the nervous system stimulates and and affects the immune system so our big the thing that we see the most or what we tell them so a lot of these patients, unfortunately, are young. The ones that I've seen really most frequently are, are young people, which is makes it all the more devastating. And um, they ask, you know, like, what's my life expectancy? And we kind of give the reference of Christopher Reeves. Right. Because he had kind of all the money in the world to really get every intervention. And even still, after his injury, he only lived seven years. So we said, even if we did everything perfect, and there are obviously advancements that we've made since the time of his injury, but still, the two biggest complications is pneumonia. They cannot cough um, because they don't have control of their diaphragm. Yeah. And then um, they don't know when to release pressure and so or a pressure sore, yeah. skin breakdown. And those are the two biggest complications that usually result in um, their ultimate like yeah. demise. Yeah. And, and I- I'm sure there's a huge immune system part in it. Like they're not that goes into it, but those are the biggest two complications that we will tell people they'll face. And I think a lot of people don't think about coughing as a necessary thing for their body to get rid of whatever's in it, bacteria or Mm -hmm. mucus. Um, And they think, oh, I wish I never coughed again, but they don't realize. Or they're taking so much cough medicine to stop their cough, they're not realizing someone who who is a quadriplegic wishes they could cough in order to get this out of their body. Right. I think that's what, so that's what kind of infuriates me about the pharmaceuticals in general is like when people have a cold and they're like, oh, I'm taking a cough suppressant. I'm like, no, you want to expel those. Your body is literally trying to expel what it is that's making you sick, cough, or like if it's, you know, seasonal allergy time and you are, sneezing i mean that is for a purpose the pollen is irritating you know your sinuses and right. your body's trying to get rid of it 
you know, fevers, as Tom and I have talked about before, like within reason, like fevers are really there for a purpose. It's your body's temperature elevating to kill or activate your immune system to respond to whatever it is is infecting it. And so I think a lot of times the simple immune responses that we want to see, like in the hospital, if somebody is really close to dying, what, the, what they won't do is mount an immune response. So I had a student not too long ago who said, oh my gosh, it's been 40 days and Mr. Smith now doesn't have a white blood cell count. It went from 35 to 10. That's a really good sign. Like something we're doing is working. And I was like, actually, his immune system probably isn't, like his body is saying, I've fought, I've fought too much. I can't. And they were like, I never knew that. Like I thought that we were doing something, like that he was getting better. And I was like, don't be fooled. Like he actually may be doing worse. When your immune system gives up, that's a bad thing. And, e- and even some things, back to the cough thing, when a child has a cough, they're told, and I believe the current recommendation is six years old, don't take any cough medicine if they're under six because it'll lead to a higher chance of pneumonia. But then when I was reading it, I thought, well, what if they just turn seven or what if they're eight? What is the difference between right. a five or a six-year-old getting a chance of pneumonia if they're taking cough medicine, but then all of a sudden it doesn't apply to a seven-year-old or an eight-year-old. Yeah, it's been a long, long time since I've seen pediatric patients or even know what their recommendations are because I did a pediatric rotation and was like, little humans are not for Mm -hmm. me. But um, yeah, I I think for most people, and whether it's my 70-year-old father or, you know, your five-year-old daughter, Mm -hmm. I would say the most things that you can do that are just organic, logical, the better, like get good sleep, get good rest. Know that a cough will not go away in three days. Not if I give you an antibiotic and not if you like just wait it out. I mean, sometimes coughs linger. It's part of having a respiratory illness and that's not necessarily a bad thing. I worked for about a year and a half at an urgent care and patients, I I would always have to like tell patients like, I know that you feel short-sighted by this visit because you paid and you waited and you want me to like give you something magical, but like your cough is going to linger for 10 to 15 days. And like, it, you know, like there's not really much we can do about it. There's nothing All magical right. I can do for your sore throat other than to tell you to drink water, get good rest, vitamin C, you know, chicken right. noodle soup is good for the soul. Like yeah. I would try and tell them anything I thought would make yeah. them feel better, but it's just, it is what it is. And it's ironic because what's probably the best advice they could ever hear in that is the least likely advice that they want. Right. Oh, they, it's super infuriating. And I'm like, I wish you wouldn't have come because I feel like you think I'm not giving you anything. Mm-hmm. But really, like, maybe I can educate you for the future to know that, you know, this is not it's where not you necessary. need to be. Like, mm-hmm. you know, this is fine and this will pass just like every other cold has. And I, and I could also see someone who's maybe 40 years into the game. Like, you're young and pushing your... Like you want to help them so badly. Yeah. But if you're 70 years old and this person's ticked off because they just waited, I could see someone being like, here, just right. <laughs> here's a prescription. I mean, a good example of that is my father had a cold after he, him and my mom were on vacation for three weeks. So they had been hiking. They were run down. They had been on flights. Early in the morning, he came home. He had a full-blown cold. And he went to see his primary care doctor. He was well into his you know practice. My dad's been seeing him for years. And he gave him a steroid and an antibiotic and then told him he was fine to have the COVID vaccine and the that flu, flu vaccine the next day together. And so I just, you know, talked to my parents about, like, the logic of, like, well, 
let's kind of talk about why this isn't good. Like a steroid is an, an immune suppressor. So we don't want to suppress dad's immune system. Mm -hmm. An antibiotic, you know, he's been sick for a few days with a cough and congestion. The man has also told me that he's worked in the yard and swam in the pool. So like, I don't really think that's a tool we need in our toolbox. And then if you want to be vaccinated, like the worst time to want to do that is when your body is already trying to fight something else going on, like when you're immune suppressed, like because the whole purpose is for your body to mount a response and create antibodies to what it's being exposed to. Mm -hmm. So I try and break it down into a way that's like, let's just talk about this step by step and why. And so at first they were like kind of resistant. And then my mom was like, you know what? We're going to put all of this in the drawer. We're going to table this and just watch him. Like, we'll take your advice. Mm -hmm. And, you know, he did just fine. Like yeah. it took a few days for him to feel better. He needed rest. And without the steroid, the antibiotic, he did just fine. Mm -hmm. um, and so that's somebody who if he's electing to have vaccines, like I would say, I want you to go in there the best you're feeling because if your immune system's already so suppressed, especially on a steroid, mm -hmm. then you're not like gonna be able to fight whatever it is that you're being exposed to. Mm -hmm. So, all right, so I, I wanna kind of wrap it up here. Maybe tell us the thing that you love the most about Columbia and the thing that you wish would change in Columbia, whether it's from the restaurant scene or the roads or any anything what i love most is columbia has like amazing charm and the events that it does it does really well so survey street bridge center holiday market soda city market every saturday like they do their events so well and i love living here and being part of this community it's what made me stay um what i wish would change is i want us to see like i want to see a little bit more development love to have an apple store love to have like a little bit better shopping in the sense that like not every like every time you want to go somewhere you're like oh well, I have to drive to Charlotte um, but mainly I, I don't want us to be too big I kind of like the way that it is just like a few more little essentials and I think it would be perfect and then I see that you were recently engaged any uh, anything like you, you want to talk about your fiance at all or mention him so we can give him a shout out I mean where would I even begin like he here's the thing he has the best self-esteem, self-confidence of anyone I've ever met. He compliments himself probably 20 times a day. Mm -hmm. And so to keep up with him, you just really have, I mean, it is, it is. A lot of positive self-talk. If I were to say something nice about him right now, he could say something about himself that was 20 times better. So I will just leave it at, he's very charming and most people like him. Okay. There's a small population that <laughs> doesn't, um, but I'm a big fan. Okay, good. Great. Sounds like an All awesome right. guy. Yeah. Okay, well, congratulations. Well, thank yeah, you. Congrats. Right. Hopefully, well, I didn't bore you guys too much. It's <laughs> kind of technical, but we loved it. Good thank stuff. You for on. All right. Here we're here for the health of it. For the health of it. <laughs>